Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Access to capital in a quick and efficient and high-value manner. What we bring to the table is the market knowledge of who are the appropriate buyers and the ability to just see this through from start to finish, having the least amount of of interruption in who our clients' day-to-day business. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of cleantech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey there, Solar Warrior. Welcome back to Suncast. I'm so glad that you're carving out this little bit of time to put Suncast in your earballs and hang out with us. I hope that you did enjoy Tuesday's episode with Erica Myers of SEPA, all about the evolution of EV charging. If you didn't check that out, do go listen to it. Uh, Erica is fantastic. Uh, as is the the SEPA team. They really do a great job with what they bring to the world. And hey, did anybody catch my LinkedIn live this week? We are live. Woohoo! If not, make sure that you're following me on LinkedIn and you'll get notified next time I do go live to keep expectations in, in the right spot. It was a two-minute LinkedIn live. I'm testing the technology. Finally got accepted after five rejections. <laughs> so uh, happy to be uh, able to bring you guys more Suncast content live on LinkedIn. Today's the second in our Women's History Month lineup of all-star clean energy leaders. And we are hanging out with my friend Britta Van Osen from Kohn Resnick, a long-time solar warrior. Britta has such a fascinating story. Uh, You know, just her entree into the industry is fascinating. She's done well, considering she was the only B-School student with zero business background. (laughs) Hear how she turned from financial crisis in 2008 to financial dealmaker in the last decade, right during the Great Recession. Britta has personally been involved in more than five gigawatts. You heard that right. Five gigawatts of deals and some of the biggest transactions in the last decade of this solar boom. But that's not the whole story. No way. She's a dedicated mother and a sterling example that you can, in fact, lead at home and the office without compromise. As we continue with our all-female lineup during this Women's History Month, I hope that you'll get a ton of value from this mighty manager, mother, and friend. Remember, you can always find the resources and learn more about today's guest and all the other shows that we've had and more than 230 founder stories and startup advice over at mysuncast.com. But for now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warriors, it is an exciting time. We're in a new decade. We're in a new month, that being March. Many of you will recognize that March is Women's History Month. We at Suncast have been very intentional about improving not just the overall diversity, but the gender equity in our guests. And, uh, you know, it turns out there's just a ton of kick-ass smart people in our business, but few who rise to the level of the guests that we have today. Uh, Someone that I've known for 
quite some time and am really grateful for the serendipity to be able to come back around after so many years and have her as a guest on our show. Britta Von Osen is a managing director with Cone Resnick Capital. She leads the San Francisco office. We've known each other for probably almost 10 years now. She's been in the industry doing banking, tax equity, corporate strategy, and she's directly advised over five gigawatts of solar, wind, battery storage, contributing to more than $19.5 billion worth of projects with Cone Resnick. It's exciting to think about the diverse topics that we're going to be able to explore with Britta, but first let me bring her into the show. Britta, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Nico. Really excited to be here. And and just one small correction. We actually just closed a a very large transaction that put us over the 20 billion mark. So we're just to be factual there, we're we're very excited about that. Fantastic. That is really phenomenal. I mean, you guys have have such a huge impact on the industry and a track record of excellence in capital and advising. But you personally, you know, being named to the Solar Power World inaugural 40 under 40, you know, at a young relatively young age in your career have uh, found yourself in leadership positions. You know, I thought that it would be interesting to start something that perhaps is an elephant in the room. I imagine I know because we talked about it for you so often as an expert in solar and finance and, and clean energy writ large. You know, you'd said, hey, there's kind of an off, uh, let's don't, let's don't discuss this one topic. It's just a burr in my saddle. Uh, but I think I'd like to discuss it honestly and sort of put it out there as the first foray of this discussion to get us on a level of human interaction that I think is necessary because your perspective on this topic is really important. What is that thing that kind of irks you about the nature of, uh, I'll just say, gender diversity in our industry? Well, so I'll tell you, it's it's my it's my question that I always just dread being asked, and it's how do you balance? work and life? How do you do all of this while being a mother? And I'll tell you, it it bothers me for a variety of reasons. The first of which is I'm often speaking on panels as an expert in finance and renewable energy, and people are instead devoting the time to discussing motherhood. Um, and I do. I have two little girls who who mean the world to me. They are absolutely amazing. And, and my family is is incredibly important to me. But I think what this question does, and really the fact that it is predominantly asked towards women, you, you, you don't see men on panels. You don't see my, I have, I have um, four partners in, in Cone Resnick Capital, and you don't see them getting asked this question. <laughs> um, and, and I think it does a disservice to us on multiple levels. One, it implies that somehow I'm struggling in a way that they are not. Um, that somehow I am more committed to family than my male partners or that I am, am somehow less committed to my job than my male partners. And I think that's, that's an unfair um, implication of asking this question of women repeatedly. And, and I think it also does them a disservice in implying that they don't want to be with their families and that they're not having these exact same struggles or or you know, having to manage or, or be efficient with their time because of this exact same thing. So I always find that fr- that question frustrating. It, it's usually a very well-meaning, often younger woman who, who actually wants to know. And so I don't, I don't really hold that against them for asking, but I think it, it actually has implications that really frustrate me about being a woman in, in finance and, and a managing director of a bank. 
Yeah, indeed. And there are complexities. I always ask about life balance uh, as a part of getting to know how executives do manage that, because it's one of the things is certainly in the startup environment that is just hard to navigate as a human. You pointed out something in another discussion that we were having that kind of blows my mind because I'd never thought about it. I think that you, you know, I, I didn't even know that you had children. We've known each other for almost a decade. It's just never been a topic of conversation. But you mentioned that you, I think, showed up to a, a conference and a friend of yours, uh, or perhaps another another female friend or not, who basically looked at you with a sense of surprise and said, where are the kids? And your yes. question to me was, I bet you never get that question. <laughs> exactly. People are shocked that I travel for work and, and have this panic expression of, oh my gosh, did you just leave your two and four-year-old at home on their own? Right. No, I bad to defend them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I see absolutely no difference between me doing that and my male colleagues doing that. And yet there is this kind of judgment and question of, of how could I possibly do that? And it's, it's frustrating. It truly is. Well, since this isn't implicitly a, a podcast about family and life balance, I, uh, I want to get into a bit more of uh, your origin story, but I'm really glad that we touched on this topic. I think it's an important one. I invite uh, the Suncast tribe to comment. You know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on Twitter or LinkedIn around how are we managing this discussion around gender equity and equality even uh, gender roles in our industry and in our environment. I would love the opportunity. Frankly, many might not uh, think about this, but I would love the opportunity to, to have that stay-at-home dad moment simply because it occurs to me through many of the conversations I've had with my mentors, how truly sad many, uh, and I'll say men, but certainly this, uh, this is gender uh, equal here, become in their late 40s and 50s when they realize that they have sacrificed their relationship with their children on the altar of professional success. It is a complicated thing to navigate. It is. And and frankly, I mean, I think I think men and women are handling it the same way. It's it's through support from from partners and support through colleagues and and you know carving out what works for yourself but it it certainly it it's not easy i i by no means am implying that that i have this figured out but what what i'm trying to propose is that this is the same for me as it is for my male colleagues and and to imply otherwise is unfair to both of us it is and such an interesting angle to think about it too and here's to the unsung heroes who often support uh, not just uh, banking executives but entrepreneurs alike the spouse uh, husband or wife uh, toes the line back home and does help with the, with the children because uh, let's face it many of us work to live rather than live to work I do have an interesting question that I've been pondering lately as I try to extra extrapolate or triangulate folks that I identify like yourself in their 20s and 30s that just crush it. And that is, what was home life like as an early, you know, sort of in the that five to 15 year old range? And in particular, what sort of occupation did your parents have and how did they encourage you to explore and find yourself? Sure. My my folks are amazing. Um, they are back uh, where I grew up in Lynchburg, Virginia. Absolutely, you know, most supporting, loving childhood you could imagine, um, you know, at every every soccer game, every violin concert, you know, 
completely present and completely supportive. My dad is retired. He was an orthopedic surgeon. Um, and my mom um, was a nurse until my sisters and I were born. I have three older sisters and is an artist as well. She does uh, ceramics and, and was primarily at home uh, with us during, during our youth. Um, my parents had this awesome outlook of encouraging us to try. They were all about give something a go. We will be here as your safety net if it doesn't go well, but you want to go try something, do it. So I wanted to go to New England for, for university. And they said, okay, give that a go. You know, see, see how that works. See if you like that part of the country. My now husband and I moved to Italy for a couple of years. And my parents, same thing. We're just incredibly supportive and, and pro giving something a try. And, and I cannot thank them enough for that because it always felt like I had such a strong safety net to fall back on and absolutely support to go after something and, and give something a try. And it was fine if you failed, but, but you had to give it a go. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that stands out about the, I look at the, kind of the progression of folks' careers, right? And you, you mentioned uh, New England, you moved to upstate New York for Colgate, which is, uh, you know, sort of a college area of New York, but certainly a little more rural. Lynchburg, I didn't know you were from Virginia. That's fascinating. But you studied, if I'm not mistaken, uh, environmental biology, yet the first real sort of impactful role that I see on your, sort of on your, in your history that would be a precursor to what you do today, interestingly enough, is a brief stint for the summer 2008 at Lehman Brothers. What was that all about? I'd love to hear that experience. Yeah. So after university, I was um, an environmental consultant and I did that for a number of years and realized that I was actually quite interested in the business world. And I had had absolutely no history in any of that. I had taken no finance classes, no business classes whatsoever. Um, so I went back to business school and I went to Cornell, um, the Johnson School. And I was primarily interested in that because they had a really strong, um, it's called Sustainable Global Enterprise. And it's all about um, kind of environmental and business and developing countries and business, etc. And I got I got to school and I was absolutely fascinated. I think I was one of the, you know, only business school students that had zero background in any of these courses. So I was truly learning all of these topics for the first time. And I had a finance professor who pulled me aside in probably the second month of school and said, hey, I think you're actually really gifted in finance and, and I want you to consider moving your major away from sustainable global enterprise and into banking. And I thought, what? Are you are you kidding me? You know, investment bankers, aren't they, you know, horrible, you know, <laughs> kill the environment, you know, <laughs> types of types of people. And he said, well, no, they're they're involved in every industry. You can you can pick out what you want. It's really just a fundamental skill set. And so I went to Lehman for the summer. Um, I was adamant about working in renewable energy, and and it actually is is how I ended up there. I mean, Lehman in two thousand eight, obviously not not the best time. Um, and when Barclays picked up all of our full time offers, they were going to let me work. They, they had picked up my offer to become a full time banker, but they weren't going to let me work in energy. And that was a deal breaker for me. 
I, I love what I do and I'm so glad that I've come full circle back into banking, but I'm not in this for banking sake. I'm in this for renewable energy. Um, and this is the field I choose within that industry. Fantastic. So obviously for those not connecting the dots, the summer of 2008, Lehman Brothers filed bankruptcy September 15th, famously starting what we now call the global financial crisis. And yeah. uh, <laughs> I just thought it was fascinating that someone without a finance background got to work in the inner workings for three months of a company that uh, was a stalwart, fourth largest investment bank in the world at the time, that went belly up at a time when our industry was hemorrhaging, hemorrhaging cash, not doing a good job of attracting capital for a number of reasons. And the first thing thought, my thought was, is, God, what did that do for her mindset? And you, you answered a bit of that there. But how did you pivot then full-time offer to go work at Barclays, like arguably uh, one of the winners from the global financial crisis, uh, certainly on the heels of picking up um, the, the layman's portfolio. What sort of deep digging did you have to do? And how did you find that first job coming out of B-School to really get into the finance element of, of renewables? Yeah, well, I'm pretty sure the uh, career services program at Cornell has never forgiven me for turning down a full-time banking job during the global financial crisis, right? Um, I'm, I'm sure that did not help uh, a number of their statistics and things like that. But but in reality, they, they were very supportive of, of me chasing what my passion was and what my goals were. So when that all all fell apart, I, I took a step back and looked at kind of renewables on a global scale and looked at what was going on over in Europe. And really, I would say they were a good five years ahead of the U.S. as far as deployment of renewables. Um, they had several very lucrative feed-in tariff programs. Um, Spain, Italy, England, um, all were going extremely strong. Germany, I mean, incredibly strong. And so um, it just so happened that my husband got an offer to go play professional rugby in Italy. No way. He did. That's um, so cool. And so we thought, well, I'm, I'm not going to go to Wall Street. Let's see if we can find a job over there. And so I spent the um, second half of my second year in business school flying back and forth to Europe looking for renewables jobs and ended up actually finding one in the in the small town where he was playing rugby, um, managing a, a German wind developers, Italian operations. It was uh, Windcraft Nord WKN. So that was that was fascinating and kind of a, a karmic all coming together for us to, to live over there. What a great life experience too, uh, to be able to, you know, it's funny, my wife and I, the reason I got into solar, the reason I started a solar company uh, was not unlike what you did. We moved to Monterey. I was doing it, my MBA. And I just said to her, she's in her, you know, and we were both in our early 20s. I said, hey, first one to get a job wins. And she got a full-time gig at this winery. And I was stuck in Monterey, California, thinking, what the hell am I going to do now? <laughs> and there just weren't like, Akina was in, you know, in uh, the the Bay Area. Solar City had basically just started. There were a handful maybe two competitors, Real Goods ended up buying my biggest competitor, Energy uh, Innovation or Energy Solutions, just jumped in. Be first, uh, I, I, would have I would have loved to have had the opportunity to go to a company um, out of Germany that kind of knew what they were doing and, and not have to figure it out uh, myself. So uh, kudos for you for spending, for being that thoughtful. I don't know how gender specific it is, but I will note that Many of the uh, female executives I've had on the show have been, I'll say, way more 
thoughtful at crafting their career, thinking years ahead of where they wanted to go than their male counterparts uh, who tend to fall up in many cases, like fall out of Harvard into a great job or whatever, right? Like you yeah. go to, you go to a B school, um, like Cornell, it's got a great heritage and you get offers from places like Barclays. I think it speaks a lot to your character that you stuck to your guns and that you, uh, pursued something that not only allowed your husband to pursue his dreams, but that allowed you to stay core and true to what it is that you really wanted to, um, want to accomplish long-term. Well, you know, if you if you want to touch on the on the female aspect again, I tell you what, um, managing a, a group of Sicilian men um, who are you know engineers and developers, the first day I walked in and they all jaws dropped and said, "What do you mean we're having a twenty something American woman as, as a manager here?" How was your Italian? Uh, it was it was okay actually. I'm a huge advocate of the Rosetta Stone. I studied that for a year before before going over there, and uh, it was pretty passable. I had an assistant who went around with me to make sure I wasn't totally screwing stuff up, but all, almost all of our business was done in Italian. That is amazing. So, from Windcraft, you went to Hestamp at a time when Hestamp was looking to expand their global operations. This is where we met. I was at Trina. You were at Hestump, uh, fairly new there and helping grow their U.S. renewables business. H- how did you navigate that, that transition time in your career? How did, and more importantly, I'm curious, how did you know from Windcraft, what was the catalyst to say, all right, it's time to move on? Well, it was a combination of factors. First of all, the Conto Energy was getting um, overhauled in Italy. So there was a little bit of a moratorium on new development, which kind of meant there wasn't going to be a lot to do over the next couple of years. Two, my husband was done playing rugby. His body had kind of had enough. And so the debate was, does he try to find a job in Italy or do we move back to the U.S.? And third, we were we had an absolutely wonderful time over there, but, but we were ready to come back to the U.S. market, um, both for, you know, family and um, career-wise. The, the renewables uh, industry at that point was really maturing and and it was starting to become um, more evident that there was a a strong role for me here domestically. Do you feel like there was earlier, um, like in that period, B-School to uh, through the time that you were at Gestamp, did you have sort of outlined the things that you knew you needed to learn or, or what was that learning process for you to become sort of become a developer, a financier who understood the role uh, the macroeconomics that were moving the levers such that you could participate in financing these and developing these large-scale deals? What were some of the early sort of wins for you uh, from a knowledge perspective? The interesting thing, obviously, about the U.S. market is how different it is given the the tax incentives and tax structures that we have here. So luckily, I came back when the, the 1603 grant was still going, so it wasn't a complete immersion into tax equity. Um, it was a little bit baby steps given, you know, the straight debt models we were seeing in Italy. So, so that was really the, the, the big learning curve that I had to, had to overcome. And, and Hestomp was great. I mean, they, um, they, we did several deals there, primarily sale leasebacks and kind of gave me that, that strong foundation of, of how to do these deals. What do you feel like took longer than you expected in your career so far? I'm constantly surprised at the continued extensions that we keep getting on the tax credits. At Comresnik, we were 
pleasantly surprised at the last extension and and then again with the wind uh, extensions occurring this last year. You know, that has been a really strong runway to facilitate growth and continued development in this industry. I think it's directly responsible for the free fall of PPA prices that we're seeing um, and really has made our industry, you know, highly competitive with any other energy resources. So that has been impressive. You know, for for me personally, I think I'm I'm pretty pleased with my progression. I think it's it's happened pretty quickly, and and I've found myself you know a, a partner at a at an investment bank um, before I probably would have predicted, and and that's been awesome, and the result of a lot of hard work, and and the result of of finding the right organization and the right partners. With that comes a lot of uh, you know hurdles to overcome. From a day-to-day basis, not just managing uh, your stakeholders and those who report to you, but in many ways, as a partner inside of the man- of this banking organization, you are you have a, there's a lot of entrepreneurship. You're running a business. What do you find to be the number one headache for you? Not just for managing your day-to-day business, but helping your team grow or helping that piece of business grow for Cone Resnick. So I wouldn't call it a headache, but I would say that the thing that we are the most fiercely protective of is our company culture here. We have worked extremely hard, the partners in this organization, to to build this group into the type of people that we want to be, um, the type of representation we give our clients, and 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 how we treat each other and how we work with others within this industry. You know, I I think it's a significant differentiating factor for us, both when we're recruiting and retaining talent, as well as as originating deals and and signing on new clients. I think they do see something different in the way we do things, in the way we treat people, and how passionate we are about this industry and about doing these deals in the right way. You know, I, I am not one of those, you know, red tie, black power suit, bankers that, that walks into the room and, and starts demanding, you know, what it is I want come hell or high water. Um, I think, you know, from my perspective, we're a lot more thoughtful. It is an incredibly small industry. So we know that people are going to have to work together again. And we know that time is also an incredibly important commodity here in getting these projects built. So I, I think we really take a special view on on how we do these deals and how we advise people and and get them uh, the money they need to build projects. Following that thread, I'd say the primary, well, why don't you tell me, what do you feel is the primary problem that Cone Resnick and others like you solve in the marketplace? Access to capital and and in a in a quick and efficient and high value manner. I mean, whether or not it's tax equity raising or debt or bond raising or asset sales or, or equity sell downs, um, what we bring to the table is the market knowledge of who are the appropriate buyers, the competitive tension to run a, a properly organized and, and efficient process, and the ability to just see this through from start to finish having the least amount of, of interruption in who our clients are day-to-day business, right? They're, they're busy building projects. They don't need to be spending a ton of time focused on, you know, the, the intricacies of, of raising the capital. That's, that's something we can do and we can do that for them in an incredibly efficient and high-value way. So Cone Resonate Capital is the subsidiary of 
the accounting firm, Cohn Resnick, a broker-dealer arm, in many ways, a boutique investment bank. And you're focused solely on or have been dedicated to solar. Two questions to better understand. I feel like this is an area of our business that some people know really well, but is also seen as both a black box and an ivory tower that in, some, in many ways intimidates developers or business owners because they just don't understand what goes on inside of a boutique investment bank. Can you tell, uh, help us understand what does a typical profile look like of a company that might seek help or advice from a, an investment bank? As a follow-on to that, where are you and your team spending your time? Like, How do you divide your efforts? So we, we are focused across the renewables technologies. So we, we do a lot of wind work, solar work, and energy storage. Um, our typical mandates, I would say we spend about half of our time focused on project finance. So that's raising tax equity and debt for specific solar, wind, or storage projects. Mm-hmm. Um, a great example of that was we, we just advised Solar Frontier on a tax equity and debt raise for their Mustang 2 project. How big is that project? Uh, 250 megawatts. Okay. Right on. Yep. So, so that's about half of what we do is is literally sourcing those those parts of the capital stack. The other half we do is a little bit more traditional investment banking, which is on the M and A side. So it is, um, for example, we just advised First Solar on selling about 400 megawatts of solar assets in California and South Carolina. Mm-hmm. That was an outright sale. We also do partial sales. So if somebody wants to sell 50% of their equity in a, in a project, we will represent them. Those are probably the two largest components of, of where we spend our time. Third kind of bucket of this is more on the um, investor side. So that's um, helping tax equity investors enter the market helping some of the larger uh, pension funds, for example, acquire large portfolios of assets. So that's all on the project side. And and then we do some of the corporate work as well. So um, selling platforms, you know, we sold S-Power, we just sold GE Solar, uh, their distributed generation arm. So, So more on the platform side, which is also traditional kind of banking work. Yeah. And for those listening who are unfamiliar, we won't go into the details, but unfamiliar of what it looks like to actually explain a platform, I'd encourage you to listen to the Mark Goodwin episode. Mark Goodwin from Apex uh, explains a lot. It goes into detail about what it means to build a platform. And that's the kind of company that Cone Resnick uh, would advise along with, as you mentioned, for solar, NRG, and other you know massive clients in the industry that have built these platforms and look for some liquidity event to be able to reinvest those funds in further development. So I understand that, probably many listening understand that, but what do you feel perhaps I don't know and I should? And I'm going to draw a bit from your experience, sort of looking at the macroeconomic levers of our business. Uh, I would imagine you come into these meetings time and time again, and you just go, gosh, I would have expected that these people know this by now. Well, I think it, that's that's actually an unfair expectation on a lot of these on a lot of these shops. I mean, so when I was at Histomp, I was there for three years, and I think I did four project finance deals. At Conresnick, I'm doing you know ten to twelve a year. I've done every single tax equity structure there is. I've done almost every debt structure that I think is out there. 
and so I've seen it all. I have this enormous stable of recent deals and solutions and ways that we've gotten around um, potential issues to draw on. And it, it's really, you know, that experience and, and working at a place like this, you know, in, in one year here, you gain the, the experience of, of working four years in, inside a dev shop. Yeah, it's really interesting. I'm really glad that you said that. I often think about the career progression and how many of us, myself included, get it wrong for lack of advice. And that's what I hope that people are gleaning as they listen to Suncast. They get the advice on career progression that helps them to modify their thinking about what the next move is, right? In my case, for example, I knew coming out of grad school, I should have gone to a manufacturing uh, business. It turns out that the years, three or four years I spent, um, well, almost five years building my own business and then working for a biz dev developer, EPC, helped me understand the customers, as it were, at Trina. But if I'd started out at Trina or Procter & Gamble, for that matter, I've certainly had a bigger, broader understanding of the levers that move the economy, like what it actually looks like at 30,000 feet. I had a recent conversation where, uh, and I've said this a ton before, uh, it's evident that the folks that run good, like successful IPPs today were, in many cases, bankers or power executives working for utilities or working for consulting firms uh, like McKinsey who advised utilities, which gives you a broad base of understanding of what are the things happening in the macroeconomic environment and where can I see uh, where I can have a a unique personal impact. Whereas if you are at a startup, uh, which is sort of the other end of the pendulum for guests on Suncast, you are, you know, as you say, Spanish milusos, like you're a, a, a jack of all trades. You have to do everything. One of the things that I know about, uh, about you particularly uh, that surprises me is how vested or involved you are in every deal. One would assume as a managing director that you're now sort of at the managerial level, but that's not the case for you in Con Resnick. Can you explain? Yeah, we, we take great pride in this fact. You, you do see a lot of these shops where you know, there's, there's a couple figureheads that are out there generating the business. And then they turn it over to their team and, and they're never heard from again. Um, we take a lot of pride in the fact that I see a deal from start to finish. I'm on the calls. I'm, I'm you know, deep in the IE report. I'm, I'm doing it all. And, and I think it's, it's helpful both in the sense that I have seen such a large number of transactions that, that often I, I truly can troubleshoot an issue very quickly because it's rare something comes up that's brand new. Um, and secondly, I think it keeps me much more knowledgeable actually in the origination efforts because I know what's happening on the ground. I know what investors are caring about down to the very you know minute details of, of how they're structuring these deals. So um, I think that is an, an incredible differentiating factor of Cone ResNet Capital. And it's one that we're really proud of and, and in my opinion, leads to way more repeat business than you see anywhere else. Yeah, that's that's actually an, an interesting point that in some way it increases, it increases uh, client retention by giving that sense of synergy. Uh, another thing I wanted to point out that you've mentioned a couple of times, I had, an, I had a mentor tell me when I was working a lot in Latin America, he said, hey, look, the reality is while you understand the Latin America market at a macro level, you don't understand uh, development at a fundamental level. And it's not because you're not smart. It's because you haven't seen enough deals. Because let's face it, in Mexico at that time and in Panama at that time, I might be looking at five to 10 deals. Guys, five years my junior year in the US were looking at five to 10 deals a day. Right? Wow. 
uh, right? So it's just that velocity, the rate of change that you get to see gives you that matrix. And I'm a huge advocate that as early as possible in your career, dig in to a role that gives you the ability to see the matrix that's op- that your industry operates in, right? You'll have plenty of time to be a specialist, but if you're going to be a specialist early, be a specialist in a team that's doing a whole lot of deals. Just the velocity of deals is so much more important uh, because it gives you that, that fabric to be able to quickly assess what's right and what's not right about a deal. Uh, I wonder if for you, uh, given that, that perspective that you have, when you come in to talk with a developer, uh, having been in that developer role, uh, what are some of the early things that you're thinking about, uh, questions that you're going to ask a developer to understand quickly if they know what they're doing or not? Yeah, well, I mean, there's, there's the, the fundamental principle of development, which is optimism, right? <laughs> I mean, developers are always pretty confident that they're going to find a workaround that the project's going to get built, that it's going to be done on this timeline. So I always kind of try to check on that and make sure, you know, they, they need the optimism because that's a fundamental aspect of doing that job. But but the realism is also really important. And, and I think it's important to know um, if people have failed before, because I tell you what, there's no better confidence builder that they're going to avoid doing that again than knowing that that something has gone wrong. And that they dealt with it and, and, you know, have that experience. So to me, you know, developers always give me their, their numbers and their outlooks. And I give them my opinions on based on those. But then I always put in some, some aspects of realism here to make sure we're, we're kind of bringing them a more valid view of what I think is, is happening in the market. And, and I found that to be pretty effective. All right, Warriors, so you know that high demand charges can ruin a good commercial solar cell. But what if you could offer your clients 30% in demand charge savings at a tenth, that's right, a tenth the cost of installing a battery? You can now do that with DemandX, a new demand charge reduction software from Extensible Energy. Check it out at extensibleenergy.com and read the three case studies on how demand x significantly reduced demand charges and increased roi without batteries as a suncast listener you can also get a free demand charge analysis at extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast what do you have to lose crunch the numbers and see for yourself how extensible energy's inexpensive demand x software is a win-win for you and your commercial solar clients Hey, Warrior, I bet you're already aware of CPS America's dominance in CNI with over 30% market share. But did you realize that they also shipped 500 megawatts of utility scale 1500 volt inverters in 2019? Their unique design flexibility makes them the only company with the ability to eliminate DC combiners in the field. And their DC to medium voltage balance of system bundle allows for as much as 40% reduction in costs. But wait, there's more. With string inverters increasingly used in utility applications, CPS is infusing smart tech innovations to drive down costs along the value chain from DC generation to AC delivery. If you'd like to find out what other cost stack reduction CPS can bring to your C&I and utility projects, head to mysuncast.com forward slash CPS. You've been involved in banking of successful ventures. You mentioned FSLR uh, selling to EDP, that big portfolio recently. Um, I know that you guys, I mean, you just did this 
deal 800 plus megawatts that brought you over 20 billion. Congratulations again for that. That's phenomenal. But I think it is in the failures that you can learn the anatomy of a deal and where it goes wrong. You have an interesting example of some of working with uh, a, you know, this is a venture new area of our business, which is storage uh, a couple of years ago that helped that can help under, uh, understand sort of the engagement at a boutique bank level and um, understanding how to help someone uh, raise money, go to market, et cetera. Would you share that story with us? We were engaged uh, a couple years ago. We were actually helping a, a CNI and Resi storage developer raise capital, and we successfully did so. We also helped them structure kind of project finance platform for their equipment, which was you know establishing how to do leases, looking at, at PPAs, and, and various ways where they could help their customers by providing the projects and providing the financing to, to get the projects built. And that actually all went quite well. We, we raised them a significant amount of debt. And, and unfortunately, the, the company did not make it. They, they basically ran into some of the, the regular issues of cash flow that you see in a lot of DG portfolios, which is, you know, issues with the complexity of inconsistency across clients, inconsistency across uh, contracts and, and, and timing of cash flow. And so it, the, the organization ended up not, not eventually being successful. We were successful in raising them the money that they needed in the short term, but in the long term, it, it didn't run out. You know the the cool thing about that was was really being on the front line of of the storage industry, and I'm you know I am so excited about storage. I think it is such a critical component that we need for. I mean, California especially, right? How how on earth are we going to hit our RPS targets without incredible build out of storage? And I think it was really disappointing that the the 2019 spending bill did not include any type of standalone tax credits for storage. I think that was a, a big mistake and and something that needs to get rectified. You know, storage is such is such the the new frontier and the exciting, you know, growth story of our industry. I I have not gotten to do enough project finance deals in it. So if anybody has project finance deals in storage, bring them to me. I'm I'm eager to <laughs> to get involved. But I'm really excited about that industry. I think it's going to be massive and and a huge, huge relevant aspect of renewables. What do you think are some of the key elements of financing storage right now that you guys are learning about and that developers need to be wary of? Predominantly right now, a lot of the utility scale storage is build on transfer. So we're not seeing a huge amount of PPA type storage standalone. Um, we are seeing storage tacked on to most of the solar projects that we're seeing bid into RFPs and and contracting offtake at the moment. And that is it's a it is financeable. It is absolutely eligible for the ITC if you do things the right way, but it's complicated. And that's really cutting some of that red tape is what I was hoping for in the 2019 spending bill that that didn't happen for the storage only ITC. So, I mean, so it sounds like it's a it's a market where it still needs quite a bit of regulatory and incentive support. But are there things that developers are doing now that you see in the marketplace that are as storage? Uh, you know, we entered the, what Sia calls the solar the solar plus decade. Uh, that developers really need to be thinking about if they believe that they're going to be able to get a deal financed with storage. I guess are there things given what you have seen? Are there things that sort of telltale signs or 
ways that developers need to be like processes they need to have in place to ensure that they are financeable? Yeah. So the capital is there. I mean, we are seeing institutional investors across the board all saying, well, I've earmarked $100 million for storage and I've earmarked this and you know, we've, we've got the money to deploy into storage. The biggest issue is the complexity. So for solar plus storage developers, the, the best advice I can give them on financeability is to make the offtake contract as uncomplicated as possible. And whether that's just a straight PPA, whether it's some type of TOD factor applied to a PPA or a straight capacity fixed payment, et cetera, that is a lot easier to finance than anything that is uh, market driven or that is, you know, kind of has a merchant component to it. Right. So merchant for storage, still not uh, particularly financeable. One of the things that you have a lot of experience in is is helping uh, with some of these new offtake models out there like CCAs. What have you and your team learned about the CCA model that you feel is interesting for listeners to understand? I think CCAs are fascinating. Um, And maybe describe what a CCA is for those who don't know. Okay. So it's a community choice aggregator. Um, They're popping up all over the U.S., but primarily in in California is where we're seeing them. Um, It's basically an alternative energy sales platform to the local utility. and so. There's tons of them popping up all over kind of Northern California and Southern California. Northern, we've got, you know, Marine Clean Energy, Peninsula Clean Energy, East Bay. Um, I think there's a San Francisco one. And, and basically, according to the regulations, you're, you're kind of automatically opted in. You can elect then how much of your energy is coming from renewable resources. And the CCAs are offering a discount to PG&E or SCE or or whoever the local utility is. And it's basically giving communities choice about what what is sourcing their energy. And I, you know, the the utilities don't love it, but um, but it is it is pretty popular from a consumer standpoint. Yeah, consumer choice, right? And uh, it ties into the the growth of what uh, several guests have called the fourth vertical, which is community solar, allowing folks that frankly just don't have the opportunity to put it on their house or or choose not to because it doesn't make economic sense can still tap into a corporate aggregation model that and that it basically forces the utility to acknowledge that <laughs> renewables need to be integrated in their product mix. Is there anything uh, that you guys have learned about the nature of developing the offtake and uh, in terms of how to engage the utilities that you'd be able to share in terms of, uh, that, that you find is interesting around sort of that anatomy of getting these deals done? Yeah. So, I mean, both on community solar and CCA offtakes, um, credit profile is, is incredibly important. A lot of the CCAs are less than three years old, so they don't really have the financial history to, to become credit rated yet. Although, you know, Peninsula Clean Energy, I think was the second one to get rated and it was last year. Um, and that was only after about two years of, of really strong financial performance. So we, we expect to see a snowball effect and, mm-hmm. and continuing to see CCAs get rated. So that's really positive. On, on the community solar side as well, there's, um, there's a lot of regulations that are making it fairly complex to deploy a lot of these uh, I think Minnesota is a great example of a, a state that got it right. Um, they offered kind of a, a floor payment from the utility, um, which really, really helped with the financeability of these assets because you knew even if for so, for whatever reason your um, various off-takers were gone, there there was a, a floor payment option from an investment-grade uh, credit. 
Yeah, these are akin to, for those of us in, in, uh, re- working in, in international development, kind of credit easing that World Bank and others engage in, right, to, uh, to help lift uh, the opportunity in uh, developing, world, developing nations where there's a lot of um, uh, financial insecurity. I imagine that you see investors from a relationship management perspective across the spectrum from small to um, what they call the, what is it, the, um, I heard Tom Warrick say this most in a, in a recent talk, the bulge bracket. Uh, I, those of us who don't speak financial terms maybe get lost in that, but where, what stage of development do you see different types of investors interested in entering into these solutions? Yeah, so it, it, it runs the gamut from, you know, wealthy individuals who are looking for tax offsetting. Um, there, there's a number of uh, aggregators that are working with those groups and kind of helping them to invest tax efficient money into smaller deals all the way to the the huge pensions, you know, CalPERS, PGGM, groups like that, that are, are buying hundreds and hundreds of megawatts or portions of, of hundreds and hundreds of megawatts. Um, at really, really competitive cost of capital that are then cash flowing for them over the next 35, et cetera, years. So it, it really runs the gamut. Um, we're seeing more and more international money coming into the U.S. and focusing on U.S. investment as well. A lot of European money, a lot of Asian, a lot of Canadian dollars being spent here. And I think a lot of this is going to vary over the next few years if, if we do enter into some type of a pullback. Um, I think U.S. renewables are a pretty solid uh, and safe place to to put those funds. And and so I expect to see this to just continue um, people pouring money into this industry. Those internationals investing in the U.S. market, is that predominantly large European and other utilities like Enel and EDF? uh, Or are there other types sort of categories of investors that you uh, think people should be on the lookout for and understand how they function? Yeah, it's both. It's it's the utilities and and again European, but also uh, a lot of Asian utilities um, and IPPs looking to come into the market. And then there's the the pure infrastructure and financial groups as well that are just looking for you know a portion of the equity and to clip coupons. Right? They don't want to build it. They don't want to you know operate it. They just want to take those coupons. What's an example of a company like that? A pure infrastructure company that's looking for coupons. I mean, there's there's a number of them, you know, and any of the pensions, right, would would fall under that. So, you know, a, a PGGM is a good example. Um, Ontario teachers, gr- groups like that, that are they have portfolio companies that can maybe take on some of the responsibilities of of building and and managing the the assets. But if they're making a direct investment, it's really a coupon play. How common is it for developers to go around investment banks and directly work with pensions and like Ontario teachers or others? It happens. I mean, there, there are certainly groups that have uh, direct relationships. There's, there's groups that have raised their own funds um, that, you know, a, a pension has parked a couple hundred million bucks. Geronimo is a great example of that with Washington Investment Board. So, so that absolutely happens. I think the the key is just making sure you know it is somewhat luck of the draw if you're going direct to somebody if they are the actual right counterparty who can maximize your value and and get a deal done in a quick manner. I think what the bankers offer is the knowledge of who is actually hungry, who's looking for that specific portfolio and that that type of risk profile and matchmaking those groups. In your experience, and you have to make this argument to win customers, but in your experience developers 
well suited or, or what do they what do you see in a developer that makes them capable of being able to do this type of finance without investment bank or or is it generally just hubris because they've got someone that was a banker that's now part of the development team I mean, look on the on the project finance side, there are groups that are that are doing this fine. A lot of the larger IPPs that are financing hundreds and hundreds of megawatts a year, they have this down. They have their core relationships. They're going back to those relationships and doing repeat deals. And I am not appropriate in those situations. I, I would not recommend they hire me. Um, and and that's fine. What we do bring a lot of value for the groups that that don't have those, you know, strong standing repeat business or or that have deals that maybe have a little bit of hair that need a little more creative solution. Um, CCAs are a great example. DG is a, a great example. Community solar, any of these things that fall outside of the the traditional box, some of the different offtake structures, you know, revenue proxy swap, some of the corporate hedges, etc. We we bring a significant amount of value there because we know exactly what the investors are looking for, and we can also troubleshoot before you even get to that stage to make sure anything that that is hairy, we know about and is is presented appropriately, and and why that risk is mitigated. There are groups that can do the project finance on their own on the asset sale and and corporate equity raise. It is rare for somebody to be able to do that internally, in my opinion, as well as a bank could. I mean, we, we just are having the number of conversations and have the recent experience and, and know exactly what is happening with 100 plus investors that are all interested in this. And it's our full-time job, right? So it's, it's rare for somebody to have that as their full-time job on an internal perspective. So that's my take. I wonder, I always like to, and I don't mean to poke the box here um, and put you on the defensive, but, you know, I would say five years ago, it was sort of prevailing uh, wisdom that sales for residential solar as a category was best done by a team that had a lot of resources, um, you know, Solar City Vivint as great examples. But as we've seen, these companies mature, sell off, et cetera, those that grew up in that environment and learned what to do sort of fall out into the market as brokers. And in the current 21st century gig economy, I see a ton of residential sales teams that aren't attached to any one solar company or developer, right? They're just, they're shopping out their leads as it were, or close contracts to Sunworks or you name it, right? Even Vivint and Sunrun. Is that something that see that could potentially happen in solar and project finance as we, I mean, I, I know a ton of folks just to sort of play the devil's advocate here who currently operate in the market as a broker and are more, I would say, cost efficient, if not time, maybe it takes a little longer, but it certainly costs less to use a broker who's maybe worked at Cone Resnick than use Cone Resnick as well. What would you say to someone who is considering like using someone who, who is a broker versus using a boutique investment bank like Cone with such deep experience? Yeah. So if, if all you're looking for is an introduction, I think that is a great option. What you will find, though, is if that deal runs into any hiccups, you don't then have the backing of Cone Resonant Capital, who has seen that hiccup, who knows the, the solution and how to get the parties to work together and, and has the accounting and structuring know-how to make sure that you're not getting dinged for that. But yeah, I mean, if, if it's a simple introduction game, I'd agree that, that that's not what we do. We are deeply involved from the start through the finish, through the final funding, uh, management of the process, you know, creating the competitive tension and then getting the deal closed in an efficient and high value manner. 
Well, Britta, what turned out better than you expected as you sort of reflect on how your career has evolved and where you find yourself in the industry as a, a tastemaker and uh, a thought leader in our industry? I will tell you, I could not be prouder of what we have built here at Comresnet Capital. I think I was employee number seven. Um, I was employee number one on the West Coast. I, we now have 10, 10 folks out here. Um, we've grown you know, probably almost 10 times in revenue during the, the last six years that, that I've been here. And it's just an incredible, incredible growth story and culture. And, and I couldn't be prouder of what we're doing, the service we offer for our clients and, and the, the group of people that we've put together here. So I'm thrilled with that. What are some key lessons or takeaways from the most important mentors in your life and career? And, and as you turn into a well-seasoned manager, how do you impart that wisdom on your team? Yeah. So there's been a couple really, really significant ones for me in the past. One is that finance professor at Cornell, Ronnie McKayley, who pulled me aside and said, what are you doing? Go get the finance, the finance background, because this is the industry you need to be in. And, uh, you know, he did that every year for a handful of students, uh, often trying to promote women in finance as well, which is is just huge. It's it's somebody who's willing to kind of use their their clout and their knowledge to to help promote somebody else. I also think you know my my partners here at Cone Resnick, um, you know uh, Connor McKenna, Nick Knapp, Frank Palladino, and Gary Durden. You know we have we have built this organization over the last few years and and really come together as a cohesive management team. And you know to bring this conversation full circle, I have an incredible amount of support on the home front, but I also have an incredible amount of support here on the on the business front. And I, I really appreciate. Um, you know, the way we work together and everything mm. uh, that we do as a team. How do you actively pay that forward as, uh, as, a, as someone that others might be looking to as an example? Oh, well, we take, we take the training of our, of our employees pretty, pretty seriously. And I think, you know, we've, we've got uh, specific mentorship aspects within the organization and, and are helping to groom people to be the next generation of, of bankers, but also the next generation of finance professionals out in the industry. We, I, I recognize being an MD at a bank is not for everyone. I also am really uh, active in Rise. I don't know if you're familiar with, yeah. with Rise. Yeah, had, had Kristen um, on the so, show. Oh, good, good. Yeah, so uh, advising the the San Francisco Bay Area chapter. Um, they're they're really kicking it into high gear here this year, um, and I think that's incredibly important, especially for women to see other women who are um, successful, who are not, uh, you know, not taken prisoners and and getting it done. So, when you think of successful especially with regard to the solar industry, what comes to mind? Um, I think it's, it's making meaningful change in, in what the renewable landscape is in this, in this, in this country. And I think, you know, for us, we've, we've harped on the $20 billion, which we're, we're very proud of, but I mean, that moves the needle. That is a lot mm -hmm. of renewable energy to be built and to have contributed to that is incredible. Um, you know, I hold my head up very high every day being a renewable energy banker because we're, we're making a difference here in the world. Given the roles that you've had and the decisions you've had to make, uh, which haven't been, uh, it's not, you, you have the distinction in our industry of having stayed at organizations for longer periods of time, uh, often in the solar coaster, you see folks that are in an organization for two, three years and then move on. What opportunities were you offered 
that you're glad you walked away from? So I'll tell you when I uh, when I started at Cone Resnick, um, I was debating between between two shops, and I, I won't name names, but it was a it was a private equity group um, that was looking at at raising a fund and and deploying um, combination of tax efficient capital and just you know kind of private equity money into the renewable space and and that group has been very successful as well but i am thrilled that i i think i found my home here in konresnik with with the with the partners that i have and and what we've been able to build so um that was not an easy decision at the time but any distinctive characteristic or quality or sort of light bulb moment in that decision making process that you reflect on now and say oh that that actually was the thing that pushed me towards cone over time, it's proven out that I made the right decision. So, really, when I joined, I was uh, I was looking for knowledge. I mean, I I was looking for deal flow, repeat, you know, reps on on different structures and and basic knowledge of our industry, and that was really the deciding factor for me. Obviously, you know, deploying the money, you learn a lot, but your your deal reps are not significantly what they are over here. So that that was my goal. Yeah, I love the uh, the workout analogy there. This might seem a little heady, but I think that you're up for the challenge. As we look out on the horizon of 2020 and beyond in the solar plus decade uh, is around the corner. What does the investment thesis or investment environment look like and how is it going to evolve? So I think M&A continues to be incredibly active in 2020 and beyond. Um, I think consolidation of the industry at some point, there's going to be a solution to the difficulty of developing uh, distributed generation that will continue to consolidate. We're going to see people continue to be creative on on how to finance that in a more straightforward and, and easy way. Um, and I really cannot overemphasize how, how uh, bullish I am on storage. I just think it is such a critical component of the infrastructure that needs to be built out truly believe that there will be an incentive program at some point. And I think that is going to be a massive, massive part of the story going forward. Well, if there is, it'll likely be birthed on one of the coasts. Uh, California has a long track record, but there are some states like New York that are making huge claims and and making big stakes. Yeah. Well, anybody with a huge RPS number has to address it sooner or later. Well, Britta, let's, uh, as we turn towards home base here, I want to dig into how you, as someone who is constantly seeking learning, as you said, one of the reasons that you went to Cone Resnick, how do you feed that uh, desire for knowledge? Many do it through books. I'm I'm wondering if there's a book that you've read or gifted the most and why, but also how you think about uh, educating yourself and and sharpening the saw, as it were. Yeah, I'll tell you, I have, I have two books that I'm I'm a huge fan of at the moment. Um, one is "Girl Stop Apologizing" by Rachel Hollis, and mm-hmm. it's uh, it was very effective for me, even even just in the title, um, reflecting on how I do interact with people and and what my role is. And I, I found, especially when I was having my second child. I took an, a completely different view on maternity leave and kind of the accommodations I needed in order to, you know, be pregnant and not traveling in the, the last trimester and things like that. And the second time around, I had read this book and I really took a different view. And I think it affected both my mentality, but also my clients and my coworkers' mentality about what I was doing. And I, I stopped apologizing. I wasn't sorry that I was having this baby. I wasn't sorry that I was going to take maternity leave. And I, I swapped it around to thanking 
So instead of I'm sorry that you have to cover this deal for me, it was thank you for covering this deal for me. Um, and it actually made a huge difference. It, 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 was, it was dramatically different in how people viewed me and how I viewed myself during that whole time. So I'm a big advocate of that book. And the other one is Quiet by Susan Cain. I think a lot of times when you think of investment bankers, right, you go back to that vision I had given you before of the the pinstripe power suit and the red tie, 50-year-old man who walks in a room and starts yelling. Um, and that's not me and that will never be me. That's that's just not how I operate. And quiet is all about kind of introverts and, and the, the qualities they bring and how you can maximize those qualities and actually use those to become incredibly successful. And I, I that, that book spoke to me a lot as well about maybe being a little different personality from you would traditionally see in my industry. Yeah. And we see in every industry that the model is, is changing, evolving, flipping, as it were. So we'll link, as we always do, to these books on the show notes page. And it's always great to see sort of life lessons that folks apply as they read the wisdom of others in between those pages. Well, along the line of uh, reading as a habit, I believe that lots of times folks who uh, are highly successful and highly motivated have some sort of consistent practice. I'm, I'm curious what yours is and you know, what's that that has contributed the greatest to your uh, sort of given the greatest impact in your life? So I'm a very process oriented person. Um, I, I'm, I'm very focused on kind of laying out what my goals are, mapping out a way to get them and then regularly checking in. I think this is also what makes me a good banker. Um, but knowing, you know, here's where I want to be in six months. Here's where I want to be in a year. Here's where I want to be in five years. And I have all of that mapped out and uh, and regularly check in with myself to make sure I'm achieving those goals. Is there a framework that you use that you found particularly useful in um thinking through what those goals ought to be and uh, and checking in with yourself? Nothing formal. I mean, I, I have it all written down. I find that that's, that's pretty critical for me to um, be accountable and, mm-hmm. and actually move it from kind of a, a vision to an actual practical, here's the goal and here are some tangible results that I want to achieve. So that's how, that's how I focus on that. Uh, apart from the field of finance and solar, what are you most fanatical about? So, I mean, I, my, my family is, is absolutely amazing. I have these uh, absolutely wonderful husband and, and two little girls who are just a riot and uh, keep me on my toes and are, are tons of fun. So, you know, really focused. They're, they're young. They're, they're almost two and, and four years old. And I've, I've just had such a blast showing them the world and introducing them to all new fun stuff that they can do and, and teaching them. So that's, that's absolutely a passion. That's awesome. Well, on the opposite end of the spectrum, what would you say that perhaps you're the terriblest at? Maybe charades and parallel parking. Like what, do, what do you find that? <laughs> well, I haven't exercised in about 10 years. So <laughs> I, I did one triathlon about 10 years ago and checked that off my list and said, I, I never need to, to do anything like that again. So. Yeah. Well, you are, you are blessed genetically as my wife is then because she says the same. We went for one run early in our marriage and she said, well, I'll never do that again. <laughs> <laughs> well, Britta, I know that there are lots of folks who do look to you as an example and a thought leader uh, and a leader in ACT as well. Where can folks 
find you? Are you uh, publishing or posting regular anywhere or how could folks engage with you? Yeah. So, you know, Cone Resonant Capital, go to our website. We, we publish regular uh, newsletters and blogs and, and all types of, of aspects there. Um, I'm at most of the major conferences, always happy to meet up with people, um, share ideas, you know, have a conversation. So you're on Twitter as well, but are you, are you active there? Uh, I'm not terribly mm-hmm. active on Twitter. Um, Resident Capital is. We we do a lot of that through through the organization. Yeah, it's a good place. In fact, on Twitter and even on LinkedIn, following Cone, you can see kind of where some of the big dials are moving. Obviously, having been involved in more than $20 billion in financing makes a difference in terms of visibility and what's happening in the marketplace. And I can say that sort of as a hack for those who are more relationship building oriented as I have been in my career, knowing folks boutique investment banks like Cone uh, is incredibly insightful. Regularly meeting with them like Britta can help you stay ahead of your peers and ahead of the crowd in terms of understanding where the market's going and how you can position yourself. Well, in that uh, vein, let's end today, Britta, with a bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? So I don't know that it's it's not being tracked, but I, I am bullish on the sto- storage ITC. Mm-hmm. I see it coming through. I think it has to. Prophetic and, uh, and hopefully profound in the way that we can see storage become a mainstay in not just our generation, but our electric grid balancing exercise in this energy transition. Britta von Olsen is a managing director of Cone Resonant Capital and a boutique investment bank that has moved the needle in more than $20 billion worth of transactions. And it's our genuine honor and pleasure to have you here on Suncast. Thanks so much, Nika. All right. All right, Solar Warrior. That did not disappoint. I just loved all the wisdom and nuggets of truth from Britta. I love the vulnerability uh, and and the, the just the level of access that Britta gives to insight into how she's grown as a person, as, a, as an entrepreneur, an intrapreneur and how she's managing this thing called life as she's uh, out there kicking butt and taking names and uh, doing all the solar deals. If you are eager to keep learning, then you, my fellow Philomath, can find the resources and highlights from this and every discussion, along with the social media links, book recommendations, and more, as always, at mysuncast.com. And that's where you can also sign up for the Suncast Tribe, which is the only way that you'll get details for our upcoming events ahead of time. Like the Ask Me Anything that we did last week with Jeff Ressler. Thank you so much to those of you who joined us on that. We will be finding a way to publish that uh, to, uh, at least to the Guild, if not out to the broader the broader populace. Uh, if you're interested in the Guild, you should check it out, mysuncast.com forward slash member. That's our inner circle of, uh, of advisors and uh, past guests and uh, Solar Tribe members that participate in our community in Slack and in other ways private events and uh, goodies that we dish out. Well, we'll be doing more of these and I'd love to hear from you. What topics and guests would you like to have on our live events, including our LinkedIn lives? Be sure to follow me there on LinkedIn so you don't miss on those as well. I hope that you'll tune in again next week, of course, as we've got Evelyn Butler and Garvin Heath talking about the PV end of life challenges of recycling. And we've got another massive episode with deal maker Mona Dejani of Pillsbury. I can't wait to dig into her story. And if you don't know Mona, man, you want to tune into this one. So we're going from West Coast deal maker to East Coast deal maker to people who are crushing it in our business. I can't wait. It's going to be a lot of fun. Well, that's a wrap today. Remember, you are what you listen to. 
Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.